couple of things I want to remind you about as we get started. Uh, first one, uh, last week I talked about the family ministry conference that we had, and I know some of you weren't able to attend, and so if you go to the website now and go under media special events, we have the audio of all of the sessions that we did in the family conference, and I would encourage you to go there if you haven't had an opportunity to uh, do so already. We hope to have something on video so that you can see some of the things that might be a little hard to understand with just the audio when we do some demonstrations and things, but, but at least you have that to start out with and hopefully more to come in the future. Uh, the other thing I mentioned last week I want to remind you of and encourage you towards is to be prayerful with us as elders as we ask God to raise up men who might serve in shepherding this church body in the future. And so I ask you to do two things. One is to be prayerful. And I gave you the two passages in Titus and Timothy to, to be prayerful about men who might live out those qualifications right now in the life of this body. And to be mindful was the second thing. So that as you see men who demonstrate those qualities, who are already at work shepherding this church family and leading them in God's word and teaching and instructing as they counsel people uh, with that truth, uh, we want to know who you see doing that well so that we can join with you in praying for specific men that God might raise up to serve this local body. So just two quick reminders. Now, probably wondering what this is all about, so let me explain it. I asked Michael to give me a set of plans. <laughs> I, he said, do you want a small set or a large set? I said, I don't know. A large set, if it has, you know, I want it to be detailed. I had no idea what I was asking for. But this is important because it relates to our passage this morning, and let me explain why. This is actually plans for a school, okay? And if you go through these plans, you'll see that every single page is specific to a different aspect of this project. I remember when I was at the hospital and we would do renovation projects, I was always amazed at how complex and complicated the planning process was before anything was ever done. And that's what this represents, is all the work that helps guide and direct the way this project is going to unfold. Well, in our passage this morning, we are going to talk about a plan that God has. His is actually in this book. It's a plan in regards to how to build his church, how to construct it in a way that honors him and fulfills that purpose. Now, these plans were done by our good friend Michael Haverding. And so he's the one that has responsibility and authority when it comes to this project. And so he makes sure that things are happening. And when somebody comes to him with a question about a certain aspect of that project, Michael's going to go back to these plans, he's going to look at what they had designed, and then he's going to guide them on how to carry that through in the project itself. Well, when we go to God's Word, we have an architect, God Himself, who designed the church to function in a specific way. And when we have questions about what that's supposed to look like, then we go to the Spirit of God who comes and takes us to the plan of God and helps us understand how that works out in our personal lives and in the life of this body as a whole. Now, I'm sure this was a, an interesting project to do. It has a lot of details to it, but I can assure you that there is no project in this world greater than God's plan and purpose for the church of Jesus Christ to carry the gospel message to the uttermost parts of the world. And you are a part of that plan. When you look at this set of plans here, you'll see that there are a lot of people involved. There's electricians, there's plumbers, cabinetry. There's an amazing amount of people that are involved in this kind of a project. 
Well, when it comes to the building up of the church, it includes every single one of us who are committed to following Jesus Christ. You, there's a page in here for you to, to help instruct you in terms of what your role and purpose is in the building up of God's church according to his plan. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So as we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we want to come to you with a heart that really does desire to follow your plan. We do believe you are the architect. You have designed your church, your people called by your name to function in a way that carries out your purposes so that your plan is fulfilled to bring that saving message of who Christ is and what he came to do to the uttermost parts of the world. And God, we're grateful and we want to understand even more meaningfully this morning the part that each of us plays. That there is something that you have in mind that you desire for us to do that is important to carry out that plan. As Carrie mentioned, it's easy though to get distracted by everything that's going on in the world so that we get lost in some other things that aren't directly related to what you've called us to do. And sometimes we just need to remember to be brought back to what your word has to say so that we can renew our commitment to be faithful to what you've called us to do, each and every one of us. Would you give us some insight and direction as to what that looks like for us this morning? And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So if you would, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. And we'll just pick up where we left off last time, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 3. Paul writing in verse 10 says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. You'll remember from the passage that we worked through last week, God, or Paul used the analogy of a, of a field. And he looked at God's people and he says, you are God's field. And he talked about the role that he had in planting seeds and the role that Apollos had in watering. And he says, we are one, Apollos and I. And his, his point there is that one cannot do thing, something independent of the other because Apollos can water all, of he, all he wants to, but if there's no seed in the ground, it doesn't, doesn't matter. And, and Paul could plant the seed, but if the soil is not softened by that water, it can't grow. And so he says, what we do together is one, but it's God who causes the growth. God alone is the only one who can make truth come alive in someone's heart. We all have a part to play, but the results are ultimately his. Both the harvest and, in this case, the house belong to God. You'll notice how he transitions. If you go back to the end of verse 9, having finished that first analogy, he says, you are God's field. And then he says, God's building, which is an introduction to what he will then unfold in the passages or the verses that, that follow. I want you to keep in mind that passage in Psalm 127 that says, unless a man, unless the Lord builds a house, the man who builds labors in vain. The idea here is this is God's house. These are his plans. We are his workers. And we want to be faithful to follow what he's called us to do, each individually according to what he's asked us. 
the first part of what Paul said last time talked about how he planted the seed. And we talked about that that seed is the truth of who Christ is and what he came to do. Here he says, I laid the foundation. He's basically saying the same thing. The foundation of the church of God is built on who Christ is and what he came to do. And Paul says in verse 10 that he's involved according to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. That master builder has the idea of a foreman, somebody who was originally on site, who's familiar with the plan, who helps oversee to make sure everything happens according to what the architect designed it to be. It reminds me of a, a man in the Old Testament. He's actually high on my list of people I want to meet when I get to heaven someday. Uh, his name is Bezalel. Does anybody recognize that name? Bezalel was the man who was responsible for doing a large part of the work on the tabernacle when it was first being built. And he's, he's a fascinating man because when you look at the description of how that is supposed to be designed and all the craftsmanship that went into it, you're thinking just in that alone, wow, that's, that's a major undertaking. But then you find out that this guy Bezalel is the one who was skilled in all those aspects. You don't need to turn there. I've got it marked, but I want you to listen. To what it says. This is God speaking. He says, Now the Lord spoke to me, Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with, my, with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship, to make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and in bronze, and in cutting of stones for settings and of carving wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. This must have been an amazing guy. And here's what's amazing about him is that he was skilled in all these aspects before God called him. But then God, through his spirit, directed him to use those for a divine purpose. You look at Paul, you could say the same thing about him. He was a skilled man, a man of great influence. In fact, he was leading the charge to destroy the church and was having a significant impact in that effort until God called him and used those very same gifts to not destroy the church, but to build the church, to be a master builder, one who's in charge of making sure everything is working according to plan. See, both of these men, just like you and I, are gifted but the Spirit is the one who empowers us to fulfill a divine purpose. And we want to know what that is. There's a passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul says, I'm striving according to his power that mightily works in me. And that needs to be our heart as well. Faithful to trust that God will equip us for what he has called us to do. You see, the, the house of God is never built by one man. Just like those plans, there's a lot of people involved, and each person has a very important part to play. Remember that passage in Ephesians I talked to you about last week, Ephesians chapter 4, the work of the service for the building up of the saints. And one of the things that I didn't read but precedes it talks about prophets and apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But those people have a role, and it says their role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so what that tells me is that every single person 
who names the name of Christ has a role to play in the building up of his church because we are all included in that work of service. We all have something to offer. So we need to be careful, as Paul tells us in this passage. He says, be careful in verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He says, but each man, the end of verse 10, but each man be careful as he builds on it. I think the idea here is don't get real creative with your design. And the reason I want to bring that up is because I think this is a particularly challenging issue for us in the Bible Belt of the good old United States. Because there's not many people that you will ever meet that don't know who Jesus is and what he did, right? And so you are going to encounter lots of people who are very familiar with the story. So the temptation for us is we got to dress this thing up. We got to make this thing look good because they know the story, so we got to really make it special, something to really capture their attention. And it has to do with how we present it. A lot of times, you'll start with someone like me and you'll say, hey, you got to get out of these khakis and blue shirt. You need to put on some blue jeans with that funky stenching on the back. <laughs> and maybe have a little uh, soul patch right here. Just, you, need to, you need to be hip. You need to be cool. Because we need to make sure that people feel like this is the, a cool thing. And let's don't stop there. Let's do something with the music, right? It needs to be like a concert. I hadn't talked to Mark about this, but I'm thinking we need to get a fog machine next year, right? Oh, well. But we want to make it look special, right? We want it to be entertaining. And so one of the things that I think we have to be careful of is being so creative that we care more about style and appearance than we do content. Because we'll end up watering down the message so that we can make it more attractive to more people. And we'll just avoid certain topics that might be offensive to certain parts of our audience. Now, I'm not saying that the Christian life has to be boring. In fact, I firmly agree with what Jim Rayburn, the founder of Young Life, said. He said, it's a sin to bore kids with the gospel. And I can't agree more. Because I believe this is the greatest message the world has ever known. It should be exciting. It, it should be th the most thrilling thing we've ever heard. But we don't have to dress it up to make it look good, to attract more people. It can speak for itself alone. And let me tell you how I believe the message of the gospel is most attractive and most significant in our world today. Are you listening? The gospel message is most attractive to the world when it transforms your life. When it makes a difference in your family. When it reconciles your marriage. That's when the gospel message means something. They may be familiar with who he is and what he's done. But have you told them what he's done for you? What difference that he's made in your life? You see, God is so creative when he designed the universe that the scripture tells that, that even the heavens declare the glory of God. And so if he can do that with stars in the sky, what in the world could he possibly do with your life? 
so that we collectively as God's people display the manifold wisdom of God. That's what the scripture tells us. We, we all have a part. And God's transforming work is significant for each and every one of us. And when we collectively display that to the world, it's the most beautiful thing anybody has ever seen in their life. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, Now, if any man builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved. Yet so is through fire. The first thing he says is build on the right foundation. Make sure that foundation is on who Christ is and what he came to do. And most significantly, what difference has that made in your life? What is the testimony of your life? What story does that tell? But here he says, make sure you build with the right materials. Now, if you were to unpack that set of plans right there, you would find a lot of materials that are going to be used. And they're not just grabbed out of nowhere. They're, for example, when it talks about the, the steel that's structural for that building, it's a certain grade of steel. It's got to hold a certain amount of weight. That concrete that's going to be poured has to be a certain kind of concrete to support the foundation that that building is going to sit on. So all these details are involved in that plan. In the same way, God's Word has details for us. It, it outlines the materials. And really, I think, in some ways, Paul in this passage is saying, and here's the full spectrum of things that you could choose from. Anything from gold, silver, precious jewels, hay, straw. And if you follow the plan of God, He'll tell you which ones to use, and they will always be things that last for an eternity. You'll notice in verse 15, it talks about if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. What he's talking about is what materials have you used? God has called us to each play a part, and we have a full spectrum of tools that we can choose from and materials that we can use, but he says there's a day, a day of judgment, when the, the fire of God's judgment will put to test the work that you've done. And if it is of eternal value, things that have lined up with the truth of God's word, they remain. They last forever. The things that are meant for this world alone, they burn up. They go away. I want you to understand that this passage is talking about the works, the, the materials being used, not the person. This is not an issue of salvation. This is an issue of faithfulness. And so he's talking about what have you done to contribute to God's plan and is it consistent with what it says in his word? If so, the fires of judgment will test it to be true and it moves on. The things that were meant for this world on, alone, they go away. I want you to keep in mind that the, the Corinthians are spiritually malnourished, right? They're consuming all these empty calories of the world's wisdom. They have failure to thrive, if you'll remember what we talked about last week. They were, what they were consuming 
was not helping them grow. And now Paul turns to this analogy of a building and he's saying, and what you're contributing is not making you strong. You're cutting corners. You're not following the plan. You're not building on the right foundation. And the materials you're using are not going to last. You see, their fellowship had become just another social event where they came to advance their kingdom, not God's. And he's saying that's going to be something that on a day of judgment, those things go away. To understand Paul's point, we need to keep the analogy in mind. He's talking about a building project. And he's already said in the beginning, you are the building of God. He's talking about the church, the, the family of God. And in each of the examples that he's, analogies that he's used, the field and now here in the building, he says, look, and each man is responsible for their own part. Everybody is held accountable to their, for their contribution, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. That is, it is being fitted and held together as each joint supplies. And it's interesting terminology that Paul uses in that passage because if you think about a joint, and when one part moves, it affects the rest of the body, doesn't it? And I think that's the reason he chose that, that, that terminology because he wants us to understand every part is never independent of the others. You don't have a, a leg just sitting over here by itself doing its thing. It's connected to a joint which is connected to the body and what one person does affects what everybody else does as well. So Paul is talking about the part that we play. And, and the reward is in the things that remain. And as I mentioned last week, if our contribution is interdependent, so what one person does is connected to the body as a whole, then you would think in some level, so, so is our reward. That, that there's a connection there. And the reason I see that's the case is because God is all about relationships. The reward is, in large part, the relationships that remain for eternity. I think that's our greatest reward. In fact, turn to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. Just to give you some context, Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonians. He's saying, guys, I really wanted to get to you and see you in person, but it, he actually says that Satan has prevented it from happening, and so I haven't been able to go there. But look at what he says in verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. The reward is in our relationship with our Savior Jesus Christ and those who are called by his name. The relationships that we have as a body of Christ brothers and sisters in faith we're not working for personal accomplishments or trying to build a, a resume of of righteousness this really is not about our salvation even paul if you look at romans chapter 9 verse 3 i will spend my lifetime not able to get my head around that verse because in that passage paul actually says i would be willing to give up my own salvation and begin be be given an eternity in hell if I could give what I have to someone I love. I just can't get my head around 
the magnitude of a person's love who would be willing to give up heaven for someone that they love. I believe Paul is convinced that this is about relationships. It's not the applause of heaven. It's the ability to be with those that you love as a family of God. Things that you do to honor your creator and the joy you have in the fellowship with those who are called by his name. Let me illustrate it to you this way. I, as you know, like to do building projects. But everything I do, I really want to do for someone else. I don't like building things for me as much as I like building something for someone else. Just yesterday, I finished a project that I've been working on for a few weeks for my wife. She wanted a sofa table back behind our table, I mean our couch. And so I spent weeks working on it, and, and uh, I found some plans, but I, I made some modifications. I wanted to use some different materials because I wanted it to be really special for her. And so yesterday, <laughs> I finished the project. I brought it in the house. So it's sitting there behind the couch. Guess where I was looking? Not at my project. I wanted to see what, it, what her face said. Because I wasn't building it for a precious piece of furniture. I was building it for her. And I have a sense that in some ways that's what heaven's going to be like. That when we get up there and there's these things that we've been a part of, we're going to look right there. And know that it was for him. And celebrate it in the context of those who've been committed to the very same thing. My favorite project probably is one I did several years ago by, for uh, Joel and Betsy Tardy. Y'all know the Tardies, many of you do. They have 11 kids, is that right? 12, 13, I can't remember. They probably don't even know at this point. <clears throat> but he came to me one day and he said, hey, look, First Baptist is a church I grew up in. And they're doing some remodeling, and in that remodel, they've taken down the original doors to First Baptist Church. And he says, those mean a lot to me, so I kept the wood, and I have it in my shop, and could you do anything with that? And so we kind of talked a little bit, and he said, what if you built a table for my family? I'm thinking, that's a really big table. <laughs> right? 11 people around this thing, a dinner every meal, right? So I thought... Okay, I'll do my best. Well, I took this old wood, and by this time, I think it was petrified. I mean, it was hard as a rock. It had so many layers of shellac. I tried all kinds of chemicals to take off that. It didn't budge. So I had to use a planer to plane down to the actual wood so I could get to the actual wood grain. And I burned up, I bet, 15 different planer blades because it just melted them like butter. It was so hot. But after I finished that project, and I took it to Joel's house. It was such a neat thing to see his family sitting around that table. And it's one of my favorite projects, but guess what? I never see it. I'm not admiring my work. I am overjoyed with the people that are sitting around it. I think when we consider the rewards of heaven, that's what we're talking about. It's the people that are going to be sitting around the table when at the marriage supper of the Lamb we celebrate what Christ has accomplished and what we share together for all eternity. That's our reward. Well, I think because that's of such significance and our hearts are so tied to these things, 
That's why he uses emotional terminology when he says, if you use the raw materials, essentially, then you will suffer loss. The picture here that Paul paints in the original language is like a narrow escape. It's somebody who's just barely taking out of the, the, the flames as they're nipping at their heels. That, that's the word picture of the, the terms that he uses. And it's a loss because of things that are left behind. Could be people. Could be possessions. Could be rewards of things that you worked really hard on this side of heaven that don't matter on the other side. It could be wealth. What it is ultimately is things that you've built your life on that no longer matter. That's the loss. Christmas is around the corner, and so y'all are familiar with a, a, the Christmas Carol story, A Christmas Carol. You've probably seen the movie or you've read the book by Charles Dickens. It's the one with Ebenezer Scrooge, right? That miserly old man who lived his life for himself. And he was very rich and had great success, but he had to step over a lot of people to get there, right? He often turned away from real needs that he could actually do something about because he wanted to keep it for himself. And you'll remember he hated Christmas. Remember why he hated Christmas? Because he had to give something to somebody. And he'd spend his life getting stuff. So he hated Christmas until that night that he was visited in a dream. Remember the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And through that experience, those, that dream revealed to him the outcome of his selfish life. The people that he had hurt, and when it was all said and done, what he had gained for himself meant nothing anymore. You'll remember that it had such an impact on him that when he woke up, he promised himself that he would never live that selfish life again. And he did everything he could to give everything he had away in a way that helped build up someone else. It totally transformed his life. I believe Paul is describing a very similar scene, but here's the difference. It's not a dream. You don't go back. That's why there's a suffering of the loss. Everything we do to make our life better at the expense of someone else is ultimately left behind. Paul calls these things works, so they're things that we invest our life into it's the things that we love that remain forever that's our reward. It's the things that we love that are left behind that are our loss. And so look at how he continues in verse 16. He says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether of Paul or Apollos or Cephas or of the world or of life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. And you belong to Christ. 
Christ belongs to God. After having used these two analogies, one of the field and one of the building, Paul now zeroes in on his point in this part of the passage. The you is plural. So he's looking at you, church, you, people of God, you, family of God. He says you, in verse 16, are the temple of God. The word that he uses for temple is intended to describe the inner sanctum of the tabernacle or the holy of holies. And so he's looking at the church, the people of God, and he says, you are the holy of holies, the very place where the presence of God dwells. That's who you are. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. And that's very different than what we just read, wasn't it? These aren't people getting past the fire. These are those condemned by the judgment of God because they have not put their faith in Christ and they are only intent on fulfilling their own desires and they're destroying the church in the process. But let me ask you this. How, how do you destroy the temple of God? If we're talking about the church here, how's that destroyed? Well, what has Paul's point been up to this time in our passage? What has his main concern been? Carried mission to division. You destroy the temple of God by dividing the people of God. You'll remember when Jesus was accused of being from Satan in his ministry. And he says, that doesn't make any sense. Because how can I be of Satan if I'm doing the works of God? A house divided will not stand. And it's the same idea here. The temple of God is destroyed through division. Those creating divisions, as he says in this passage, are the ones that are deceived. They're the ones that are deceiving themselves. And the concern for Paul is that these, these are people of influence that are leading others astray, relying on the wisdom of the world instead of the truth of God's word. They're putting certain truths aside in view of more acceptable ones. The quotations from the Old Testament in this passage actually give us some helpful insight. The first one there in verse 19 is from Job chapter 5, verse 13. It's a quote from the, quote, wise counsel from Eliphaz. Remember, Eliphaz was one of Job's friends. And when he came in and saw all that Job was going through and the suffering that he was enduring, he said, look, there's only one explainable, re one logical reason this has happened to you, Job. As your friend, I'm here to tell you, it's got to be your sin. That's the only logical explanation that something so bad would happen to a person is because you've deserved it. It's your sin. When you remember, God discredited his counsel and he says, your counsel you think is wise is foolish in the eyes of God. It may make sense to you to explain it logically, but it's not the way God works. And if you're not going to him and seeking his truth, then you don't have anything to offer because it's foolishness. The next one is Psalm 94.1, verse 20. That is a quote from Psalm 94.1 where David is praying that, it, that God might overthrow the wicked and vindicate, I mean, yeah, vindicate the righteous. And the reason he's saying that is because the wicked are winning. And he's like, God, this isn't fair. I'm looking out there, people are investing in all the wrong things, and it's working for them. We're, we're trying to do the right thing, and we're getting the short end of the stick. Would you please vindicate the righteous? 
condemn the wicked. And the message of the psalm closes with the idea of be patient because there will be a day when people will get what is due and God will vindicate the righteous and he will condemn the wicked. And he tells David, live for that day. I believe that's the very heart of Paul's message to the Corinthians. Live for that day. He's trying to give them a wake-up call. Because they're investing their lives in all the the wrong things. They're spending their time on things that, that really don't matter. Verse 21, I think, is intended to communicate, look, you have a choice. He gave them the full spectrum of materials that they can choose, but he's trying to help them understand you're choosing the wrong things. You're following the wisdom of the world instead of aligning your life to the plan of God found in his word. Because only those things connected to the plan of God have eternal value. So build your life on the foundation of Christ. Use materials that are defined in his word that remain forever. Because they build relationships that are based on that foundation of Christ and the fellowship that we have with him. Live according to God's plan. Now with that in mind, I want us to be reminded that the scripture makes it clear we are all individually held accountable. We all have a part to play in God's plan. So I think it's appropriate after a passage like this, we ask ourselves, how are we doing How are you doing on your part in fulfilling God's plan? And let me give you three questions that I want you to ask yourself and consider this week. The first one is this. Are you following God's plan? And specifically what I'm asking here is, is your life being directed by God's word? Or are you being creative? (laughs) Kind of doing what seems right in your own eyes. Following the path of Eliphaz. This is what makes sense to me. Why wouldn't God approve? Well, why don't you ask him? Why don't you go to his word and see what he says? There's a saying in carpentry, measure twice, cut once. (laughs) I have learned that lesson many, many times when I haven't measured twice. I've cut, it's short. There's nothing I can do now. I've just ruined that piece of material, right? Measure twice, cut once. And so one of the things that I want you to think about when you're following God's plan is, are you measuring twice before you cut once? Are you making sure that the steps you're taking are in alignment with God's word? And here's one of the ways that I think that's helpful. I recently did a project with my dad. We built a mantle for a house that they have. And uh, that was fun for me to do with my dad. Um, But one of the things that was nice about a project like that is, we became a check and balance for each other. I can't tell you how many times we went through this and said, okay, if we cut this one and we have these dimensions, is that right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah, that seems right. So we would go through it and we'd do this back and forth the whole time. And I'd be over at the chop saw ready to make a cup. It's 16 and a half, right, Dad? Let me look. Yep, 16 and a half. Okay, good. That's the way it should work in the body of Christ. Measure twice, cut once, and do it with people that you trust who can confirm that this is the right direction. Invite them into your life. See if what you see in God's word is consistent with the testimony of the church at large. And if it is, cut it. Move in that direction. Go in good faith. But don't get in a hurry and don't get creative. 
second question I want you to ask is, are you using the right materials? <laughs> and specifically what you can think about here is what you're contributing, building up the body of Christ or tearing it down. Do you have the gift of encouragement or the gift of criticism? <laughs> because a lot of times we think, well, I'm not a, a negative person because you're thinking about all the things that you're saying in your mind. What I want you to think about are the things that come out of your mouth. Are they building up or are they tearing down? And I think the places where you have influence are where this is most important. Parents, this is where we need to think about what we're doing with our kids. Is what we're saying to them building up or tearing down? Is our parenting based on guilt and shame or the grace of God? If you're a husband, you have a role of authority and responsibility in your marriage and family. To such a degree that Paul says in 1 Peter, if you don't care for your wife as the scripture, the plan of God instructs you to, your prayers will be hindered. God's not listening if you're not faithful to what he's called you to do in your home. And so with higher levels of responsibility become higher levels of accountability. And so we need to ask ourselves as we have influence in relationships, are we building up? Or are we tearing down? And here's a great passage for you to look at. Go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. This is the litmus test to determine if what you're contributing is building up or tearing down. Ephesians 4.29 says this. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit of God? Because the Spirit of God knows the plan of God, which is to build up the church of God. And you grieve that Spirit of God when you go your own way and don't listen to what He's telling you in accordance with God's plan, building up that church. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit because the Spirit wants to build up the church. And it goes on to say, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Here's the best part. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Take some time this week and list out the qualities of what that forgiveness looks like. Self-sacrifice. Unmerited. Forever. And just see if that's the heart that you have in your relationships with others. Are you building up or are you tearing down? What materials are you using? And then finally, the last one. Look at your life and see if there are places where you can anticipate suffering loss. And, and what I'm talking about here, what you're investing yourself in that you truly love, will it remain or will it go away? And I think we need to be particularly mindful of relationships in this question are you investing into relationships that are christ-centered that are growing up the body not just within this church family but beyond their brothers and sisters in christ throughout the city are your relationships building into those and for those who don't know christ are you consistently trying to both speak in a way and live in a way that portrays the gospel message of a transformed life through faith in jesus christ Will those relationships remain or will they be lost? And how are you investing yourself to make a difference? 
So just look at your life and consider what you've invested yourself in, where your passions lie. And just ask yourself, will this remain or does this go away? I think it's really important as we look at this passage is to understand that that God is a great architect. He created the universe in a way that declares His glory. He's created the church for the very same purpose, to display the manifold wisdom of God. And here's His plan. And you are His workers. And what we do together is what God's designed to be the difference in the world as we portray and proclaim the saving message of Jesus Christ. So let's live that together in accordance with his plan. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that uh, all that we've done today brings clarity to the purpose that you've called us to, to build our life on Jesus Christ, our Savior. That everything that we do is centered on what he has accomplished and what he's called us to, and that we each understand that we have a part to play, that we're held accountable to the things that he's called us to, that he's asked us to be faithful to, what each joint supplies, because what each one does is dependent upon everything else that's going on. Help us to love what lasts forever, relationships, things. Help us to invest our lives in things that that are eternal. And help us to to not get distracted by following our own wisdom, doing what seems right in our own eyes, what makes sense to us, what seems logical. Help us to default to what seems true according to your word and confirmed in your people. And trust in your plan, believing that your best is built into your design. May we be faithful to follow on that conviction. We pray this in your name.